This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome to Almost Heretical. We're going to play our interview with Science Mike here, but I just wanted to say he's absolutely wonderful. He hosts or co-hosts two podcasts, The Liturgist Podcast and Ask Science Mike. He also wrote a book about his journey from Southern Baptist Church elder to atheist to Christian again called Finding God in the Waves. You can check all that out at mikemccarg.com. That's Mike, M-C-H-A-R-G-U-E.com. If you've never listened to Almost Radical before, welcome. We are two former pastors that started to rethink the theology that we were teaching. Uh, One of us quit and the other got fired from the churches that we were part of. There's a lot there, but and we get into that on the show, but um, that led us to discovering a whole community of just millions of people who are also rethinking theology, spirituality, and the Bible, and aren't ready to give up on all of that. We do this show because the Bible and the church have so often been used as weapons to hurt people. We are close to many of those people. We've met a lot more of those people by doing this show and we love the bible and we want to give it back to you by showing that the biblical writers may have been saying the complete opposite of what we always thought so we hope to de-weaponize it for you and if that's you then welcome we just finished a series talking about gender roles women pastors paul if you're up for giving Paul another chance when it comes to his views on women, we'd love it if you'd go back and listen to that series starting on episode 30. And we'd also love to connect, so you can reach us at almostheretical.com. Okay, but without further ado, here's the chat with Mike. We're just really excited to have you on today, and it's been kind of a <laughs> it's been kind of a crazy week um, with all of the Supreme Court, Kavanaugh, all sexual assault, all that kind of stuff. How how are you doing? Oh, boy. Well, first, uh, you know, I almost didn't accept the invitation for a show called Almost Heretical because I don't think I've ever been accused of being almost heretical. I think I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm more in the, the fully heretical group. Uh, Someone wrote a review on our podcast and said, remove the word almost and you know everything you need to know about the show or something like that. Okay, then I fit right in. Okay, yeah. perfect. Welcome. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think my, whenever I get a one-star iTunes review, it's uh, this is a man who denies God's truth about the Bible. So it's okay. Okay. Here we go. Bring, yeah. it, bring in some <laughs> some assumptions into the space. Um, yeah, I'm okay uh, today, uh, mainly because I've just not been thinking about anything. I, um, I decided I'd earned a little mental vacation. So... Uh, I guess I still found some time to throw a little fire on Twitter this morning, but um, it's been a tough week for sure. I think it's been a tough week for everybody. Uh, It's been fascinating to watch. I've suspected for a while that there were some fundamentally different value systems happening in America, and that is readily apparent now. Um, So I have no doubt that it's been a bad week for everyone that uh, conservatives are bewildered and confused as well. Um, But for me, as a progressive person and as a survivor of uh, sexual assault, this has been a really activating, traumatizing kind of week. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think for sexual assault survivors, it's like, what what, this is a ridiculous question uh, of how important is it that this person gets nominated to the Supreme Court? We had a very similar dynamic 
when Trump was elected, um, I get that there's like political needs and that politics matter. But to see men so broadly and widely accused of sexual assault, you know, sail into positions of power with really broad support by one of America's two major political parties makes people who've experienced sexual assault feel really unvalued, unknown, uncared for. Uh, So it's like, well, what really matters is our getting our tax rate secured and our political positions. And if that means we have to put someone in office who has been credibly accused of raping or assaulting another person, that's fine. That's a, that's a secondary or tertiary concern. Um, And so I've been really wrestling with, because I actually try to hold a really gracious, fundamental posture towards all people, understanding that most people are basically good. Most people are products of their upbringing. Most people are just trying to make it through the week. Um, But what I actually have found this week is, uh, well, you know, 52% of Republicans and 48% of white evangelicals say that even if all the allegations against Kavanaugh are true, that he should still be confirmed to the Supreme Court. And that that's a stunning, <laughs> stunning figure that's been validated by multiple polling sources and one that makes me question my assumptions of, of goodness and decency among folks across theological and political spectrums. Yeah, totally. I mean, can we just talk about that for a few minutes? Like, I... Uh, I'm not a victim of sexual assault. I have people very close to me who are, uh, and and that exasperated my feelings of rage uh, over the last last few days. Um, and and I think it it brought me to a place uh, yesterday. So this is Saturday. So uh, this is just coming the day after, uh, you know, the the meeting to confirm him and all the flake drama and all that. Um, I I felt probably more despair toward the future of American society and uh, and whatever the church is within the society than I've felt in in a long time, at least that I can remember feeling. And I know that women and people of color have been telling us how bad it is for generations, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and we, many of us, have been trying to listen. Uh, for me, it's been just the last few years in life where I've realized how how badly I need to listen to those voices. And still yesterday and, and the days leading up to it felt like I, I was watching something worse than I even could imagine. <laughs> it, it really felt like it was like the evil was televised uh, and and exposed for what it was. And then the church was just like, yeah, that's fine. Uh, that 48% statistic you just quote of white evangelicals saying, even if the worst case scenario is true, we just don't care. Like we just don't care about women's bodies, women's rights, sexual assault, abuse, victims, all that. Like how, I guess for me, share like that led me to a place of deep cynicism, uh, really been hard to muster a lot of hope <laughs> in over the last 48 hours or so. But it's also just brought my attention to, like you're saying, these really are opposing values, like not just two political parties that happen to have different sets of economic (laughs) ideologies, like, or a progressive church and a right-leaning church. These are like (laughs) 
opposite sides. It seemed to me to be every day growing further apart and more and more like morally, uh, we're on opposite sides of a battle that I just don't see ending ever or anytime soon. Well, they're, they're fundamentally different neurological orientations. Uh, one thing we've kind of seen and found and discovered among um, brain imaging studies is that conservative brains are, are functionally different. They have a really elevated uh, fear response and a really elevated disgust response compared to more progressive brains. So some of this really does come down to a neurological orientation and how people find security. So it's, it's actually your propensity to try new types of food that you haven't before uh, is an excellent predictor of your political orientation. So we might have this feeling that we're rationally choosing our political orientations, but there's at least a reasonable narrative with some evidence behind it that our political beliefs are formed at the intersection of, of our social conditioning and our brain orientation. Um, and so I think one thing you're seeing happen with this deepening of a, of a intense partisan divide is brains which are fundamentally deeply change averse and feel frightened and insecure in the face of social change, uh, you're seeing a collective panic response. So this kind of all in on Donald Trump, this all in on these crazy nominees is because these brains that, you know, if you survey them, uh, would never try eating a grasshopper, for example, or, um, could never eat steak if it's they see it under a green light. These aren't choices they're making. And so they're seeing changes in marriage. They're seeing changes in family structure. They're seeing rapid societal change, and their brains are panicking. And then in their communities, they talk about the change. They have a theological framework that says the change is dangerous and will bring forth the end of the world, and that creates an incentive structure to justify actions that 10 years ago would have been unjustifiable. Mm -hmm. I actually believe 10 years ago, a Donald Trump-like figure would not have had a chance of winning evangelical votes. I actually believe that 10 years ago, credible accusations of this many credible accusations of sexual assault would have not had such broad-based support. Now, don't hear me wrong. I know about Clarice Thompson and Anita Hill and, and certainly saw that sail through as well. Um, but I think it's possible what we're seeing is a widespread panic among conservatives matched by the top coming off the pressure cooker for really justifiable anger among marginalized groups in the progressive coalition. So if you're a black American whose parents grew up in the Jim Crow South, who lives in the new Jim Crow South, where there's been this outward proclamation of progress, but you look at incarceration rates, you look at uh, the way prisoners are turned into very cheap labor forces in for-profit prisons, you look at every time, uh, almost without fail, 
an unarmed black man is killed by a police officer that no justice is served. And at some point, you've had enough. And the discomfort of change-averse brains is not enough to get you to be quiet anymore. Uh, if you're Hispanic or Latinx in America and you watch what's happening on the border and you're watching not only uh, undocumented people be deported, but American citizens who've been naturalized having their, their citizenship revoked and they're deported, that puts you in a similarly fearful state. So you're seeing the coping me mechanisms, I think, on the right turn into actions that invite an equally survival-oriented response uh, among the progressive coalition. Um, and then you, you, you tie into that great machine minds that are using genetic algorithms and evolutionary algorithms to try to optimize what we see uh, in our social media feeds so that companies can make more profit. And these machines figured out really quick that the most bankable emotion, the thing that will raise their share price the highest and increase the chance of that algorithm surviving another generation is moral outrage. You can take moral outrage to the bank if you're a social media company. And so you, uh, if you're a, an unthinking machine who only wants people to look as much as possible, you learn from billions of data points that the best way to hold people's attention is to show them passionate, angry messages that they already agree with and occasionally a view that's oppositional to their own that will also evoke moral outrage. And none of that moves us towards co co consensus. None of that moves us towards solutions. That moves us towards uh, a line in the sand that we dare the other to cross. And don't hear me critiquing people's anger, especially marginalized people. Their anger is super justified. Uh, their life experiences are measurably different in the data than those of, you know, Protestant white Americans, men especially, straight men especially. Um, but the problem is they're just there's just a lot of white people in America. And if... Um, justifiable anger from marginalized people creates a, a more cohesive white voting block, everybody loses. So uh, that's why I think it's important for some people um, to try to provoke empathy and mutual understanding because we are finding that when any decent percentage of white progressives shows up in coalition with marginalized people, um, change happens and change happens quickly. The problem is that act of liberation will, will often deepen that moral collective panic on the right. So we're watching what happens when primates invent language, culture, and the internet. Um, and I, I actually find great comfort watching footage of, of chimps and gorillas and, uh, and other close relatives of our species. Um, because if you would imagine chimpanzees had Twitter, well, gosh, they'd be doing exactly what we're doing. So, I, you know, I am, a, I am a person of faith. I love to think about us as 
bearers of the image of God, whatever that means. Uh, but when I think of us from an evolutionary standpoint, I actually find some comfort because this is not behavior that is out of the design specifications for the family of animals we call primates. I talk a lot. I'm so sorry. I just start just ranting. That's great. Yeah. No, I'm fascinated by, uh, you, you, you brought up a number of things there at the beginning for the reasons why, let's just say, you know, conservatives, um, politically conservative people would be making some of the decisions or justifying some of the decisions they're making. Um, and one of those reasons that you said was the Bible, their theological framework that they're viewing the world through. And I mean, that's a large reason why we do this show is we're, we, we talk, we talk a lot. Brian Zahn has this line. He said it on the show of making Christianity possible for his grandchildren is, is how he, he phrased that. And mm-hmm. um, we've kind of, I guess, latched onto that of, we're like, yeah, that's, that's really what we want to do is, um, is make Christianity possible instead of holding on to things that are, aren't necessary to hold on to or uh, interpretations of the Bible that, that probably are just wrong and are causing a lot of harm and actually using, using love and what actually brings goodness into the world as a hermeneutic, uh, a way to read the Bible. Um, anyway, so I just, I guess I just wanted to jam on that for a little bit of what do you, I don't know if there's a question here or not, but like, what do you, what do you do with the Bible now? Um, and yeah, like, what would you say to your 20, I don't know how old you were when you were a elder in the, um, Southern Baptist church, but what would you say to that, to that mic, um, about the Bible, I guess, like, and, and how to approach the Bible? What, what, what do you do with this thing? I wouldn't try to get 20 something me to change their approach to the Bible at all. I would know that would be a fool's errand that no amount of uh, passionate discussion, no amount of presentation of evidence would have moved my views a centimeter. Um, I would have emphasized values I thought were important from within the humorneutic I held at the time. Um I'm not really into changing people's worldviews. It doesn't work. Um, I'm actually, you know, I'm in the middle of writing a book right now, and one of the things I'm talking about is cognitive biases. And I'm aware of things like the backfire effect. The harder I try to change someone's views, the more that they will trench in and hold them deeper. So if you listen to my work, I'm really careful to be like, yeah, what you believe is great. So like I, I validate their frame and then sneakily place their frame within a larger frame. So I'm like, your frame is great, but what we all agree on is that people have dignity and worthy of love. And people go, that's right. So if I know you're in this evangelical frame, then I'll say, and you know, even no matter how you read the Bible, it's there in black and white that we've been we've been called to reach out and minister to the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. That's that's right in the prophets. That's echoed in the words of Christ and even in the words of Paul, right? So I don't try to change their frame. I try to place their frame within another frame, more compatible with mine, and then use my understanding of their frame to create a shift in action without changing a shift in view. Um, I try to call people to health wherever they're at. So um, I don't want to change people's views about the Bible. I want them to understand that there are things they do in their life every day 
that furthers the institution of white supremacy and that white supremacy is not compatible with their view of Christianity. Forget my view of the Bible. It's not compatible with their view. So if I can call attention to that in that frame of everyone is worthy of dignity and love and and then kind of reveal the degree to which they have a, a hermeneutic that's also been influenced by some uniquely American ideas. And if I can just introduce the ideas, not that your views are wrong, but that your theological views contain elements of politics, that they contain some um, democratic, republic, you know, hyper-individualism elements. Um, I don't need you to change it. I just need you to be aware of it. I need you to see the way that, okay, so you're an evangelical and you think America is a great nation, and even God's chosen nation, because of these values that we have of freedom and opportunity. And then we can examine, if it's true that our country is about freedom and opportunity, why does it seem that that opportunity isn't producing similar results across different people groups? And I'll ask questions. I'll get you to explain it to me. I won't, I won't like stand on my high horse and and uh, just quote data, although I can, but I know that's going to provoke the backfire effect. So as much as possible, uh, especially in the podcasts, I try to invite people into conversation and into discussion. Now, that's not the strategy I always use on social media because I understand that the environment is different. Often all I do on social media is offer solidarity with people, uh, and then occasionally as possible, I'll I'll flip the script a little bit and and push back against whatever the digest is that day. Um, but to me, it's it's not about what would I tell a person in any particular reference frame. I see shortcomings and I see advantages to every reference frame that I'm available of or that I know of. It's more how can I try to invite people in reference frames to love, acceptance, and mutual understanding. Yeah, uh, I love that, Mike. And it, uh, you know, you use the word action, right, within a, a system of values. Um, I, the language I was using it uh, in thinking about this, wanting to talk to you, is the word ethics. Mm. Uh, and and something that's fascinating me, I've always uh, I've always been fascinated with the liturgists, not just because I think it's a great podcast and you guys do a great job, but I think it was kind of a revelation uh, to me just from the outside. Uh, watching over the past few years, uh, I think realizing that there was this whole segment of society uh, that I knew existed in some part. I, I don't think I realized how large <laughs> the segment of society is. Uh, and I know, you know, you could try to explain uh, who you who you think is in this segment. The way I've kind of construed it is some people that have one foot in the church, one foot out, you know, s- aren't content with just stamping the label of Christian uh, and of, you know, have a messier, more complicated relationship, but also aren't content with uh, giving up on any form of spirituality or, uh, uh, or even engaging in theological conversation. Um, that's at least from my vantage point, kind of uh, how, I've, how I've pictured this. But one thing is fascinating is like from the conservative church side, right? Like I went to a pretty conservative seminary and 
uh, as I'm sure you've heard, the liturgists to them represented this like bastion of like the threatening slippery slope, right? And uh, and yet what's fascinating is even while you say that you have, have really come to be more open-handed and, uh, and don't need to go evangelize your worldview on everybody around you, that that doesn't mean you don't make strong ethical stances, right? And actually even the, the liturgist podcast uh, is doing ethics, right? And it's kind of revealed to me that, that there's a whole segment of the population that the conservative church thinks is like this uh, immoral or amoral portion of society that doesn't care about the Bible because they don't want anyone to like you know, put any authority over their lives. And yet (laughs) there's a massive portion of society that actually feels, it seems like the church is no longer holding the moral high ground and actually is, is functioning in many ways as an agent of immorality in our society. And, and you realize then that there are lots and lots and lots of people, whether they look to religion, church, spirituality, science, that want ethics, right? That was kind of something that that uh, I didn't really expect a few years ago, is just to see uh, that I think especially young people are not trying to live an ethics-free life. They're actually hungry for a for a good, just way to treat people well and lovingly, and uh, and to make a more beautiful society. Uh, so I'm just. Can you speak to that a little bit in terms of like how you even approach um, ethical conversations, how you even build your own system of ethics and uh, and your own uh, take? Because this is just me as an outsider sort of uh, observing, but what your own take has been on this whole realm of, uh, you know, kind of spiritual nomads. Uh. So some of our best numbers and downloads uh, are at, conservative seminaries and colleges, Christian colleges. Mm. I mean, that's that's where our numbers are off the charts. Wow. Um, and so there's this coalition I call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and the duns. Nuns mean I have no religious affiliation, uh, usually anymore. Most people aren't born nuns. They become nuns through a faith transition. And duns are people are like, you know what? I'm, I, I still believe... In Jesus, I still believe in Christianity. I still value the Bible, but I am done with the church, right? And that's kind of the coalition that forms uh, the Liturgist Podcast. By the way, a segment of the nuns are agnostics and atheists, of which we have significant numbers listening. Um, and so that that's the coalition, and because that's the coalition, the same institutions that often publicly denounce me privately invite me in and pay me money to come talk to them about how to talk to millennials and post-millennials because I'm great at it and they're terrible at it. Um, and so as part of that uh, presentation that I've given so many times um, to really big, big well-known conservative religious institutions. I basically run through a lot of data that shows that millennials and post-millennials have incredibly permissive and open uh, stances on social issues in terms of policy. 
millennials overwhelmingly support uh, same-sex marriage. They overwhelmingly support the legalization of marijuana. They overwhelmingly, you go point by point by point by point, and it's not close. But then when you dig into their actual behavior, um, millennials smoke less marijuana than Generation X or the Boomers did at their age or currently, right? So more more Boomers who, who are on paper so much more religious are likely to be regular marijuana users. They just feel guilty about it than millennials are. Millennials have fewer sex partners. They have sex less often. They wait longer to have sex for the first time. They have lower rates of teen pregnancy. And because of that, they even though they are a few percentage points more uh, accommodating of abortion uh, being legal, they are far less likely to either have an abortion personally or say they would have an abortion personally. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing with millennials is they're just they don't show up for bullshit. They have no tolerance for institutions to claim one stance and then do something else. So if you're a church that reads from the Bible and the Bible talks about caring for the poor, but you have a beautiful campus in a middle-class suburb and you don't let homeless people in the front door, millennials go, this smells like bullshit. I'm out. And that's what's happening. So yes, of course, the Liturgist Podcast talks about morality and ethics because we know our listeners are interested in that. They are interested in figuring out how to live in the world in a just manner. There are so many white listeners of the Liturgist Podcast who say, you know what, I've become aware that white supremacy is a problem in our country, but I don't know what to do about it. I don't even know where to start my research to figure out what to do. And so we try to create the space and the venue for those conversations and those discussions. And so what amazes these seminaries is that so many millennials listen to us that that really disagree with us on theological issues. They really disagree with us on how we read the Bible. They may really even disagree with our specific ethical and moral stances. But why do they listen? Because they know that every host of the Liturgist podcast will put into practice what we say. So if I say uh, I'm against something, they don't have to worry it's going to come out in the news that I've been doing it in private. Um, they're not going to get betrayed by me that way. If, I, if, I, if I'll do something, anything, I'll say it in a microphone and let millions of people hear that I did it. And I'll invite their judgment and their condemnation or whatever, but I don't receive it because the North Star for these people is honesty. Because America and American media and American social and civics institutions have been so dishonest for so long. Hmm. And millennials grew up in an environment where all those chickens came home to roost Millennials survived the highest divorce rates in American history. Millennials survived some of the greatest economic collapse in human history. Millennials grew up in an era where there was great economic growth and prosperity um, that they didn't get any of. They've watched as corporations make all the money, and they can't get good jobs. They can't pay student loans. They were told that they needed to survive and get a good job. And, and and they're done with the lies. 
Um, and so, you know, I actually have a lot of sympathy for churches and for colleges who say that the liturgies are very dangerous to them because we are. And we're dangerous because we validate this fire burning in people's hearts that it's not okay to say one thing and to do another. And that's why I figured out we have such a broad diversity and viewpoints and identities in our audience is because what the progressive lesbian and the conservative evangelical millennial have in common is their respect that what we say and what we do lines up. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. I, I'm just, I guess I'm still curious about like the Bible piece for you, like maybe for just for you personally, like, why do you, why do you care? Why do you, why do you stick? Cause I know that, you know, I've been listening to the, the Christian episodes that you, if you haven't listened to that liturgist, Christian Christianity, and it's been really, really interesting um, and helpful, but I'm just curious, like, why do you specifically like care about the Bible? And yeah, I think, I, I think the reason I ask is cause I, I know I have friends. Um, I come from a pretty conservative background. I was uh, planting churches in a very conservative denomination. And um, and so some friends from that world would say their biggest fear is that the Bible just becomes another book, another good historical book. Um, that's like the biggest fear that they're trying to protect against. And so it needs to stay this, um, you know, it's very important that it's divinely inspired and it's without error and all these things. Um, and I know that a lot of that you don't necessarily... <laughs> hold to or it might mean something very different why why are you still interested in the bible why do you care what the bible says and yeah i'm just curious i guess i talk about that a ton in my first book finding god about the waves finding god about the waves (laughs) i was like wow that's interesting that's not the one i read yeah (laughs) that is not the title of my book finding god in the waves is the title of my book i think the chapter is called the good book basically we're storytelling animals and Something that can actually provoke us to change our behaviors and find social cohesion is navigating mythologies, stories we all know. How many millennials and post-millennials can meet and really understand each other in five minutes just by talking about which Hogwarts house they belong to? But there's a tremendous value in that because everyone read this giant tome of books that had a navigating mythology. We wonder, like, why are the Parkland students these teenagers willing to face down United States senators and presidents and say, I will not yield because they grew up reading Harry Potter and the Hunger Games. These navigating mythologies really influence the way that they interact with the world. 
And so the Bible is a collection of phenomenal navigating mythologies. Western civilization was incredibly influenced by this tome of books. The mark of that ancient literature is indelible on the basic philosophies and structures of the society in which we live. Ignore it at your own peril. So I have so much familiarity with the Bible. I'm so fascinated by the stories of people who, like me, tried to figure out who in the hell God is and what God wants and if God is even real. And if God is real, what are the implications for me today? There's a whole tome of writings exploring that, and then there's a massive universe of other people unpacking that and writing it down too. So when I read the Bible, I enter into a multi-millennial discussion encompassing countless, not just voices, but cultures and cultures at different points in history. I place myself inside a massive stream of exploration of this question Who's God and what does God want? So I love the Bible. I read the Bible every day. And I find it, of course, to be divinely inspired, if that's a thing. Without error, that's a tough, that's a tough standard to place on anything. Um, I mean, I guess I could say like maybe a proton is without error. They always do what protons are supposed to. Uh, but if I get much past that, I'm gonna find a lot of errors in this universe. Um but it's a weird it's a weird way to look at a book. Nobody in the era in which the Bible was oral tradition or when it was written down would have understood a notion of infallibility. Uh, that is such a strange post-enlightenment, even modernist projection to put onto ancient literature. That's just not how people thought. Um, and so I... I've let go of those assumptions, and doing so has allowed me to really immerse myself. I mean, I don't know if you can see on the shelf behind me, I have a lot of Bibles and a lot of Bible commentaries and a lot of um, extra canon resources from different streams of the Christian tradition because I enjoy wrestling not just with the text but the historical context of the text the way the text is so often a, a Rorschach ink blot that reveals more about the reader than the text itself and watching that unfold through history and all these Christians claiming that, yes, I have the one right and proper view of this ancient literature, uh, which is I enjoy primarily because it's hysterical. Um, and I just try to avoid falling into that trap and realize, like, the great thing about the Bible is the Bible when you engage with it in sincerity, sincerity will become the book you need it to be today. Uh, and it's precisely because it is so deep and so broad and so culturally significant. Well, I actually think that's... Uh much of what the the metaphor of the scriptures as living was always supposed to entails, um, you know, the the connection you make to the Hunger Games and Harry Potter, I think, is perfect because for generations, 
many people, at least, have uh, remembered and appreciated the Bible as resistance literature written by refugees and prisoners and slaves mm. uh, that in each new generation lives on to inspire hope and perseverance and, uh, and faithfulness in the midst of trials and suffering and, and all that. Uh, part of my own personal faith crisis over the last few years uh, and in the last two days is just seeing how so much of American Christianity has used it in the exact opposite way as a source of uh, preserving the status quo and preserving uh, the power structures uh, that exist in our society. And like you said, it's, it's a Rorschach test, right? So I, I saw Dr. Ford over the last two days facing that room of of kings, of white men uh, in in power, I saw a beautiful, courageous, self-sacrificial, mm. Christ-like action. Mm. And in in my biblically shaped, uh, you know, Bible-shaped imagination, I uh, I I correlated her action with Jesus. Mm. But I know, and I saw on Twitter that just as many, if not more. Christians were conflating Brett Kavanaugh being accused of sexual assault and the possibility that he might not get his promotion to a Supreme Court seat as him being a Christ figure, experienced suffering because the the forces of God's enemies were coming against him. And, and they also looked <laughs> to the same texts, right, to the same biblical metaphors, biblical stories, uh, to put themselves in the Messiah <laughs> hmm. uh, position, right? And and it just leads to this situation where if we both in this growing divide we've talked about, like in, and you mentioned, is, is reacting uh, potentially in more and more volatile ways to the other, if in our American society that's been so shaped by Christian Christendom and a, and a kind of, uh, you know, Christianity as the, as the state religion of sorts— and both sides see themselves as the the Jesus, right? Like mm-hmm. I, that's where I just get like, how does this not end up in a not to be bleak or kind of like, you know, the uh, the apocalypse guy? But like, how does this not lead to a kind of civil war if both sides believe that their calling is actually uh, to keep going? And and every time that the other side disagrees with them or pushes back on them, it's it's them experiencing persecution, right? And them fulfilling the church's duty of being, you know, suffering in the face of, of hostility. Uh, that's a sense where it's like, if, if the Bible is functioning to support each of our individual uh, positions, uh, where does this go? What you're describing is why I'm so happy that I was an atheist for many years and why I hold still many atheistic assumptions. Uh, I think there's great danger when people over-spiritualize the Bible and over-spiritualize their narrative as some continuation of a thing that happened in the Bible, because we have, as you say, great historical evidence that when two groups have been reassured by a sacred text that they are the good and right one, all sorts of crazy things become justifiable. So, I don't see myself as a modern Jesus figure. 
Um, I see myself as someone trying to learn from the teachings and the examples of Jesus. Um, but as I say fairly often, if I climb up on a cross and I'm crucified, it won't do anybody any good. <laughs> um, so I always try to inform my faith by sociology and anthropology and secular ethics and behavioral economics and try to have a, a more clear-eyed, um, nuanced perspective on my place in the world. Uh, and if there's a navigating mythology that I find especially helpful in the Bible to avoid a call to arms, it's the depiction of a good neighbor being one who will despise or who will cross a boundary of being despised to help one in need. So according to the Bible, I'm never more Christ-like than when I reach out to someone who is unclean in my group's estimation and help them. And so that means um, queer folks are super marginalized in society. Even in progressive circles, people might say that they are affirming, but they're actually very uncomfortable with the actual presence of actual queer people. And so when I reach out in solidarity to a queer person in need and serve them, I understand the Bible. I'm doing a very biblical thing in the same way that because I'm quite progressive, if I see a conservative evangelical bloodied on the side of the road and I cross over as people screech unclean, unclean and help that person, those are the moments I'm doing according to Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, the summation of everything the Bible narrative stands for. The biblical narratives, there's no single Bible narrative. Um, and so we just, we kind of check ourselves. We check our motives. Um, I think at the best, the Bible calls us to humility and questions self-righteousness, um, which isn't to say there aren't moments, frequent moments, where prophets cry out, stop saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Um, I think Martin Luther King embodied that well. Uh, you know, stop looking for a negative peace with the absence of conflict, but a positive peace with the presence of justice. These are, these are things that kind of push and pull and push and pull. And done well, I think, our face should draw us to examine ourselves and our motives and whether or not we are truly seeking peace or not. Um, and that does mean for me sometimes taking sides. Um, I tend to stand with the, the marginalized because of my read on liberation theology and how compelling I find it. But even amongst that, I, uh, I think I'm called to offer grace and offer space and offer understanding to people who are just beginning to walk a path that I began walking many years ago. And that's a good role for me. That is how I am a good neighbor. And with that focus, um, you don't see me escalating people towards civil war. Um, and in fact, I would, I would work very, very hard to avoid such a thing.
I don't know if that helps or not. Yeah, it's helpful. Do you, uh, on a personal level, uh, I guess, do you or how often do you identify with some of the cynicism (laughs) and despair uh, that at least today uh, I'm feeling and articulating? Uh, Is it easy for you to kind of maintain hope, maintain a posture of, of wanting to be a peacemaker, uh, or is it a battle for you when you get up each day? Oh, I struggle with cynicism all the time. And I just tell myself, there's good reasons you're cynical. That's an understandable impulse. Is your cynicism today helping or hurting? And if it's not helping, then I counteract it. I meditate. I look for signs of goodness and love in people who I'm frustrated with. But I get super cynical. I get I get cynical about everybody. It's not just conservatives. I mean, everybody says they're justice-oriented. Their carbon footprints aren't really measurably different from conservative people, not in any significant degree. I get very frustrated that we are, you know, pretty thoughtless animals, um, and that as beautiful as it is, kind of all life is that way. The pattern of life everywhere we've seen it is to expand as much as possible until all the resources are gone and then to have its population crash. Um, so that can make me cynical or I can just open myself up and say, well, that's just how life keeps on living. And so how can I, with an understanding of that overall arc of organisms, show up in solidarity, show up to confront suffering, show up to promote empathy and understanding? And I understand based on neuroscience that the more I focus on helping others, the less cynical I will be. The more I'll get the happiness trifecta of dopamine serotonin and oxytocin that produces a sense of ongoing peace and joy. I find that not when I ponder in isolation the problems facing the world, but when I show up in a concrete way in action to demonstrate love, help, and support for others. That's my off-ramp from cynicism. I'm just, I'm thinking about the, thinking about the tweet that you made, I think it was yesterday or Late last, you were up last, you were up late. You were tweeting late. I was pretty keyed up, pretty keyed up yesterday. You were talking about uh, pastors and the, the tweet is, if your pastor and other church leaders have been silent about sexual assault this week, then they've told you where they stand. And you went on to kind of clarify that because people were having... Conniptions. <laughs> yeah. And I've, and I've seen you say that about other topics too, like listen for this, you know, on Sunday, are they, are they talking about this? If they're not, you know, consider, is this the church for me? Do I need to go somewhere else because of this? I feel like there's a lot of the, the term is good Bible believing or Bible teaching churches, right? In America, we were always told like, this is, you need to find a good Bible teaching church. And I just looked on Twitter this week and I didn't see them saying anything about anything. They, they were largely talking about, um, quote unquote, the gospel, and we're going to keep preaching the gospel. And, you know, the, um, we, we pick on John Piper a lot on the show, but, you know, he's talking about Proverbs and just going, it had nothing to do with, he said one thing about, oh, I want to read the John Piper tweet now. Um, uh, what was it? It was very just like in the middle. Um, so I can't say he was completely silent about it. It was, 
O Lord, knower of all hearts, ruler of all governments, don't let a good man be destroyed by lies and don't let a liar on the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm no John Piper fan. That's actually a pretty great tweet. John Piper just passed the threshold of what I'm asking faith leaders to do. <laughs> that That is, and I might catch some heat on Twitter just because, but that seems masterfully done. Um, he didn't pass judgment, which I could see I would frustrate some people, but he left open like, if this guy is lying, he doesn't belong on the Supreme Court, which shows solidarity with victims of sexual assault. Um, and as I, I say that as a victim of sexual assault myself, um, but then he's saying like, if, if, if these accusations are false, don't let someone be destroyed. Um, I don't think false accusations of sexual assault are terribly common. Yeah, what'd you say? Two to two to eight percent? You said on your latest episode of Ask Science Mike. Depending on the study, it's anywhere from two to ten percent. Most experts would say it's four and a half is about the highest reasonable number. Um, but yeah, so he spoke up. He spoke out, and he, and he held a door open in, from a very conservative perspective for survivors. Um, it's tough. I understand churches don't want to be partisan. They shouldn't be partisan. Um, but every church says something when a city is flooded by a natural disaster. Every church says something. It's not like churches never speak to current events. When there's a lot of broken bodies and blood on the ground, churches say something to address the suffering. How many churches said nothing the Sunday after September 11th? None. None. Every church talked about death and dying and tragedy that Sunday. My point is this Kavanaugh hearing is a natural disaster level event for sexual assault survivors. Hmm. So say something of comfort and solidarity for them. I'm not saying you have to pass judgment on Kavanaugh or talk about Kavanaugh at all. I don't give two shits if you talk about Kavanaugh from the pulpit or in your social media feed. What you need to say is a lot of people have been deeply hurt by sexual assault, and we know people in this church have been hurt by sexual assault, and we hear you, and we believe you, and we validate your experiences. And anybody who tries to take move the ball to some other place from there is missing what I'm talking about and missing an opportunity to help people. They're dragging in some other political assumption that I don't care about. I'm speaking as a survivor of sexual assault, offering consulting for free for church leaders, that if you want to know how your silence is interpreted by us, guess what? It's complicity, it's participation in a culture that allowed us to be assaulted and ashamed in the first place. And frankly, shame on you if after hearing that, you still continue to be quiet. The way it feels to me, Mike, this, the silence, let alone the the support, right, of the, uh, like you quoted, the 48% that wanted to push him through, even if it was all true, um, is we talk on the show a lot about power. 
and how it really seems to me like power is at the heart of all of our <laughs> our biggest troubles, our conversations, uh, our theologic <laughs> theological takes on things. And, and this just felt to me, uh, as someone who has experienced abuse of power in a church and been burned by it, and now sees a lot of life through that lens, it was like, oh yeah, that's just our whole society, is the de facto position is we're just going to trust and uphold the guy in power, and no matter who comes against him, <laughs> no matter what the validity of, of the case uh, or the seriousness and the, the tragedy of the case, that's a threat to, to the status quo, and, and we're going to stand against it. And I just can't—I'm uh, sure some people just think I'm kind of riding my hobby horse, but I, I really can't uh, see how power isn't central— uh, to these issues. So I've been spending the last year or so just trying to <laughs> study and learn as, as much as I can about power dynamics uh, and social levels, interrelational levels, all that. Can you just kind of go science Mike for a little bit on power and the, and the, the role of power in these kinds of situations? Every critique that atheists have about religion, every is a strong word. I'm trying to make sure I can still stand by it. <laughs> I think every substantive critique that atheists and anti-theists have about religion is when religion is co-opted by authoritarianism. Authoritarianism plus religion is an especially toxic mix. And when you elevate the needs of the organization and standing by the leader of an organization over the physical, emotional, and economic needs of the people that actually create the organization, you have authoritarianism. And that justifies really toxic, really damaging things. It's authoritarianism in the Catholic Church that justifies covering up sex crimes involving children to protect the reputation of the church, right? That's an authoritarian move. And so what we have in America right now is a broad coalition of authoritarians, and they're authoritarians in the public sphere, and they're authoritarians in their churches. And they have perfectly legitimate and valid psychological motivations for being authoritarians, right? I understand the seeds of authoritarianism and where it comes from. Uh, but when we allow those groups to dictate the terms of the conversation and allow them, very few churches in America have a majority of authoritarians in the pews. So what happens is a number of authoritarians, let's say between 10 and 30%, create a culture of a authoritarian empowerment for leadership, and then a much larger passive coalition of non-authoritarians simply goes along with the flow, often with discomfort. What does a non-authoritarian look like? Jeff Flake looks like a non-authoritarian, a frustrated non-authoritarian, in a very authoritarian Republican Party right now. So what's he do? Sometimes he shakes his head and goes, boy, I'm concerned. But then there's no further action. Um, so the only way to kind of stop authoritarianism is for the larger block of non-authoritarians in organizations to say, hey, this isn't okay. And that's actually happening. Uh, but instead of confronting their institutions, non-authoritarians are just leaving. And, and that's one of the reasons so many churches are closing. That's one of the reasons more churches close every year 
than start. That's the reason more Christian colleges close every year um, is because people are going, ah, I'm out. Um, and so although I understand right now we're very concerned with the movement of authoritarianism, I think if you look at uh, socioeconomic trends, the future isn't bright for institutions like that because people are voting with their feet and with their dollars. And, um, well, that's why no religious affiliation is the fastest growing religious group in America and soon to be the largest. Could you just add to that? How, um, what's your definition of, uh, use Jeff Flake as an example, but how would you define an authoritarian, uh, especially if you take it out of like the, the realm of senators and, and into the life of a, a more average person? How would I describe an authoritarian? Let's see. Authoritarians are all about strict conformity and obedience to authority. Uh, they like a strong man. Um, and that obedience comes at the cost of personal freedom or expression. So if you, if you think obedience is more important than personal expression and you need a strong leader to maintain that, that's authoritarianism. Now, sociologists have kind of uncovered three distinct variants of authoritarianism um, that I probably can't go into off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, that's what an authoritarian is. It's, it's strict personal obedience, limiting personal expression as held in, by a powerful leader. That can be a pastor. That can be a president. Um, and authoritarianism just tends to go to bad places. If you let authoritarianism keep growing, it gets to fascism pretty consistently. Um, and that can happen in both right and left wing movements, by the way, you can, you can, you get an authoritarian left is a perfectly possible thing. It's a, it's happened historically. Um, and just, I think sociologically, we can just say pretty safely, um, in the long run, authoritarianism, authoritarianism doesn't play out well. Um, and so it needs to be confronted before it becomes too powerful. Yeah. On a bit of a different note here, I, I tweeted this the other day that one of the only pushbacks we've gotten on this show is, well, I guess there's always the pushback of, you know, this is heretical, but we anticipated that response from certain groups, which is kind of why we titled the show what we did. But one of the pushbacks I've heard is the one of, you know, you sound angry, essentially. It's almost as if anger is kind of this disqualifier or something to be avoided um, is how it kind of comes across, I guess. But one of the things I've appreciated about you, Mike, and for me, it's always the most touching times in Ask Science Mike and the Liturgist podcast are you getting angry with the marginalized at the ideas and groups that are hurting them. I mean, when I look at the state of the evangelical church in America, the way the marginalized are treated and how it's the church oftentimes using their Bibles to justify or find the reasoning for those views. We quote James Cone a lot. Um, and he has that quote talking about racism where he says, isn't it time theologians got upset? Isn't it time that people who love the Bible and think it's being used as a weapon get angry at that and do the work to de-weaponize the Bible? Anyway, I'm just curious. Um, yeah, maybe if you could speak to anger a bit. Yeah, what's wrong with anger? Where, where did we? Let's examine where we got the idea that anger is bad. 
Why is that such a Protestant value? Eh, probably a Catholic value too. Why is that such a modern Christian value that anger's not okay? Where do we get that? And if you look historically, um, that's coming from post-feudal system. So you couldn't, if you were a serf, you couldn't express anger to a noble. I'd kill you. <laughs> uh, and that was a control mechanism, this, this deference. And then we have this economic disruption with the Industrial Revolution, uh, where the working class you know, starts to have, have more standing. Uh, and this is kind of tolerated, in fact, embraced by ruling classes because they got so much wealthier with this increase in productivity of working classes. Uh, but it means we created the notion of the gentleman and we started to uh, engineer social structures that were basically designed to keep people in conformity uh, with structures that didn't necessarily benefit them. But it, it, it felt great. Uh, if your grandfather worked in the mud, but you work in a factory, and your boss calls you sir too, that's, that seems like great progress. But so this social structure kind of was born, this prohibition against anger, um, is a way of preserving power structures. So it's if you're in leadership, it's really advantageous to have a widespread cultural prohibition against the expression of anger and to place that in the context of what God wants because people, they'll really go along with what God wants a lot more than what a ruling class wants. That's a way to, that's a way to pre prevent social revolutions, right? How often do, are theological revelations required to create a social revolution almost every time. Um, and so I've just kind of examined like, why am I, why does I so upset when black people were angry? Why did that frighten me so much? Cause I'd be like, well, I understand what you're saying, but do you have to be angry about it? Because if you're angry, you're not reasonable. And I went, Oh my gosh, my prohibition against anger is how empathetic white people are kept in support of white supremacy. Holy cow. This is a dangerous idea that anger is not okay. Can anger be unhealthy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can anger be dangerous? Of course. Of course it can. But so can electricity. Hmm. Electricity can power your home or it can stop your heart, but that doesn't mean we have a prohibition against electricity. It means we have rituals and systems to make sure we use electricity in safe and healthy ways. And what has astounded me in the last couple of years is to see the way that so many marginalized people have really healthy relationships with anger. They haven't had the same culturalized prohibition on anger now that you know if you're in the Jim Crow South of course if you're a black man you're not expressing anger in the presence of white people but in the safety of your own community you have rituals and systems and places where anger is allowed and it turns out that's psychologically healthy uh, anger can be motivating anger can create solidarity so I allow my anger 
when it moves me to action. I allow my anger when I have seen how helpful it is for women who've been sexually assaulted to hear that I'm, I don't just believe them, but that I am angry about what happened to them. But that creates healing. That promotes peace. But when my anger leads me to justify not seeing another person's humanity, when my anger draws me towards some degree of violence towards other people, well, that's when I know my anger is crossing a line from healthy and productive to unproductive, and that's when I examine my motivations, and that's when I calm myself back down. But I show anger publicly on purpose to start tearing down this notion that anger is some universally destructive force or that conflict is always unhealthy. In fact, the absolute avoidance of conflict is one of the most unhealthy psychological relationship mechanisms possible. I so appreciate that. And I mean, I see all the connections, right, to talking about churches being silent <laughs> on the conversation around sexual assault, right? It's, uh, you know, if, if anger is, uh, is identified as, a, as an okay and appropriate and even, you know, in the Christianese terms of a righteous response to injustice, then of course the church would be a place where you gather and and minister to one another in the context of, of that anger, <laughs> right? Uh, mm. But silence seems like it's actually uh, implicitly uh, saying that this isn't the realm of the gospel. It's not an appropriate response. Uh, that response isn't actually going to be uh, valid in, in this space. And that's why I actually... I've probably taken uh, your lead in this, Mike, in ways that uh, I may now even just be thinking about. But uh, since we started our podcast in January of this year, I've uh, I'm one who struggles with unhealthy anger, <laughs> and uh, and also uh, has a strong justice streak uh, that wants to. Um, advocate when there needs there needs to be someone to advocate and i've i've wrestled <laughs> with this feedback as being someone who hosts a podcast and i've i've come to terms with realizing that actually as a as a white man who's doing public theology uh i really see it as a responsibility that i have uh in part of my ongoing repentance from white christianity and white supremacy uh and and in part, my solidarity uh, with hurting people is to actually express appropriate levels of anger at things that are not right in the world, mm. uh, in part so that people who are scared <laughs> to express their anger can feel just a little bit less alone. I mean, one of the things I noticed on Twitter following uh, the the hearings yesterday morning, uh, actually, it was, it was following uh, Kavanaugh's, you know, speech or his defense was how many black men on Twitter pointed out that if they were ever mm -hmm. to display that amount of anger in their facial expressions on their job, they would be <laughs> fired immediately. Mm -hmm. And it just, it, it brought attention, even uh, the disparity and the kinds of emotions we're allowed to show in our faces <laughs> based on the, the different uh, status, you know, markers we have in the society. Uh, so in that way, you know, <laughs> Kavanaugh's anger was kind of a symbol for what he's allowed uh, and what I would be allowed that so many aren't. Um, but I think on the flip side, there's there's responsibility uh, for those of us that 
have been given a platform or have made a platform for ourselves to express solidarity with hurting people. So I just want to say, actually, personally, Mike, uh, just realizing now from uh, listening to the liturgist for years and thinking about uh, podcasting for a while, I've I've probably learned a lot from you in that. So thanks for, for setting a good example. Thank you. You'll never hear me at a loss for words unless you say something nice about me, at which point I'm like, oh, well. okay so to wrap up i i want to throw you the question uh you've been a public speaker and a podcaster and an author now for what four or five years uh is that about right seems good to me okay so however long that goes at the end of your life as a uh, a public uh speaker in various formats uh, what do you most want to be known for? Every time something bad happens, a quote goes around the internet. It's from a public service announcement that Fred Rogers gave about how to help children through times of crisis. And Fred Rogers shares that his mom always told him when things were bad to look for the helpers that they would You'd always find people, even in the scariest moments, who are helping. And more than anything else, I want people to remember me as a helper. Beautiful. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for being that uh, over the past few years. I mean, <laughs> I've I've learned a lot from you, and I know. Uh, tons and tons of people <laughs> have found new possibilities uh, of faith, of existence in the world, of treating one another mm. um, from conversations that uh, came for you guys at a risk. <laughs> uh, mm. So thanks for, for being that. Yeah, I just want to say that as well. Thank you so much. And, and friends, I don't share that the work Mike is doing has an audience of millions to build him up at all. I really don't care about that kind of stuff. I say that the liturgist and science Mike has millions of listeners because I've heard from some people that have no clue why a show like this, ours or theirs would need to exist and feel like there's not an audience at all. And so, so I say you have millions of listeners and we have thousands of listeners to say, no, there are so many people Mm. in this same boat. So many who the theology and picture of God they held and taught is no longer working anymore Mm. who are done with lots of the experiences of church they've had who have had the bible used as a weapon against them millions of millions of people it's as you said mike that's the fastest growing religion in the u.s and to those people that would say there's not an audience they don't see all the emails and the stories we receive and the, the pain and the loss that so many people are feeling so take comfort in that friends The reason we do this show is to help you not be alone anymore, to not feel crazy, and to give you courage to keep going. Even though it's hard and even though you'll receive pushback and possibly be called a heretic, we often say that we're here with you and we're here for you. And we want to help give the Bible and God back to you. So Mike, you've done that for me and I just want to thank you for your work and Thank you for chatting with us today. Mm. Thank you. And thanks for having me on your program today. It was an honor to be here with you. 